Hi and welcome to Pod. I'm Ran Levy. Today's episode, the history of LSD. This episode is a big first for me and for Simpad. It's my first episode as the sole host of the show. It's not the first time I host a podcast. On the contrary, I've been a podcaster for the last eight years. But as you may have already noticed, English is my second language, and although I've been practicing and improving my American accent, the decision to host a full episode was not an easy one. So why host this specific episode? Well, when I was 25, I traveled to Central America. Three months in the rainforests and enchanting beaches of Costa Rica, Guatemala and Mexico. I rafted down the Rio Blanco, scuba dived in the caves of Yucatan and climbed the Pacaya volcano. I had the most amazing experiences. But if you ask me what was the experience that left a real lifetime impression on me, you might be surprised to learn that it had nothing to do with the forces or beauty of nature. It had to do with a cute four or five years old indigenous boy. He stood by his father behind a small hot dog stand in one of Antigua, Guatemala's small streets. And when I passed by, he smiled at me and waved. Hey, gringo, he called out. Hot dog? I smiled back. I wasn't interested in buying a hot dog. I'm adventurous, but not that adventurous. So I kept on walking. But the child's smile stayed with me the whole day. He reminded me of my younger brother, who was about the same age back then. Only at night, right before falling asleep, I realized why, out of all the faces I have seen, this boy's face stuck with me. Seeing him made me realize how random are our lives and destinies. My younger brother would finish high school, attend university and get a well-paying job. He would enjoy all the benefits of living in a modern Western society. And the boy from the hot dog stand? His father sold hot dogs, and most likely so would he. Two lovely boys, two very different fates, all because they were born in two different countries. This tiny and meaningless encounter changed my worldview. Until that day, I was a sworn capitalist. I believed with all my heart that every person can succeed if only he or she would put their minds and effort into it. While I'm still mostly a capitalist, that experience taught me what inequality really means. It was this experience that I felt I wanted to share with you listeners personally. And so I chose this episode to be my first solo episode. But why am I telling you this story? Well, to experience that life-changing event, I had to travel to the other side of the world, an expensive and complicated affair. In contrast, some people claim that their lives had been turned upside down due to a deep spiritual experience after consuming LSD. 28 hours of flight, $5,000 and one stolen credit card 
compared to a tiny little stamp on the tip of the tongue while sitting on your lazy boy in your living room. Everybody knows that LSD is a dangerous drug. Federal law defines it as a Schedule I drug, which is, according to the Drug Enforcement Administration website, a most dangerous drug of all drug schedules with potentially severe psychological or physical dependence. This classification makes LSD more dangerous than cocaine, which is a Schedule II drug. Yet LSD is not addictive, and in the last hundred years or so, not a single case of death as a result of an LSD overdose was reported. Why then is LSD considered so dangerous? Why did the broad consumption of LSD in the 1960s steer such a radical reaction from the authorities? The answers to these questions has to do not only with the physiological structure of our mind, but also with our social structure. Sit down, lean back, turn the volume up and close your eyes. Forget everything you thought you knew about LSD. CM Pod is proudly sponsored by Outbrain. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably used Outbrain today. You just didn't realize it until now. Outbrain is the service that recommends which stories to check out next when you're browsing your favorite sites. Didn't know there was a service for that? Ever wondered why you see the stories that you see on sites like CNN, ESPN and People magazine? It's because Outbrain uses algorithms to figure out what you might like to see next based on your interests and other readers like you. So, the next time you reach the end of a story on your favorite site and you're thinking about what's next, remember, Outbrain thinks of that for you. Outbrain. We could all use a little direction. Visit Outbrain.com for more info. Albert Hoffman received his chemistry diploma in 1929 and joined Sandoz, a drug manufacturer, as a research scientist. His expertise was in medical herbs and fungi. He extracted useful chemical compounds out of plants and tried to produce them artificially. In 1935, Hoffman began researching ergot, a fungus that grows on rye. Ergot has a long and troublesome history. Midwives traditionally used it to ease labor pain, yet the smallest mistake in dosage led to severe poisoning. In the early 20th century, chemists succeeded in separating the active material, ergotamine, out of the fungus, and Sandoz sold it as a medicine for gynecological conditions. A few years after the success of ergotamine, and as technology improved, Albert Hoffman decided to return to his research on this fungus. It wasn't easy. Ergotamine is a very sensitive compound that tends to break down easily, and producing it was very expensive. When Hoffman requested half a gram of ergotamine to begin his research, his supervisor reprimanded him for being too extravagant. So Hoffman decided to work with a slightly different type of ergotamine, a compound that required an additional refining process, but was much cheaper. This compromise turned out to be a blessing. 
During the extra refinement process, Hoffman realized that the molecule that until then was thought to be the active component in ergot was in fact a mixture of several molecules. He isolated these molecules and identified the one that formed the basis of all active compounds in the fungus, lysergic acid dethylamide, LSD. In a short while, Hoffman learned how to produce the lysergic acid artificially. He started experimenting with it by combining LSD with other compounds. His goal was to find a compound which could stimulate the respiratory and vascular systems. Each combination he created was numbered LSD1, LSD2, and so on. Combination LSD25 wasn't very successful. The technicians who tested it on rat labs reported to Huffman that its effect on the respiratory and vascular systems was minor. As a side note, the report mentioned that the animals seemed a bit restless. Huffman set aside this compound and turned to other research. Five years passed, but Huffman hadn't forgotten the LSD-25. His intuition told him that this molecule hadn't yet exposed all of its secrets. Quote, I could not forget the relatively uninteresting LSD-25. A peculiar presentiment, the feeling that this substance could possess properties other than those established in the first investigations, induced me, five years after the first synthesis, to produce LSD once again so that a sample could be given to the pharmacological department for further tests. This was quite unusual. Experimental substances, as a rule, were definitely stricken from the research program if once found to be lacking in pharmacological interest." End quote. One day, while Hoffman worked on the LSD-25, a strange dizziness gripped him. Hoffman left the lab early and went home to rest. As he lay in bed, he felt as if he was dreaming, even though he knew that he was awake. He saw odd images, shapes, and shiny colors that struck him one after the other. After two hours, it was all gone. Hoffman understood immediately that the LSD-25 had something to do with those sensations, yet he couldn't understand how such a thing was possible. The ergot fungus was known to be poisonous, and Hoffman had been strict about safety rules in the lab. So how did the material penetrate his body? The only likely explanation he knew was that the residue of the material was left on his fingers and that he had accidentally touched his mouth with them. But even so, the amount must have been extremely tiny. Hoffman decided to verify that the LSD-25 was indeed the source of his hallucinations. The only way to do so was to try ingesting it again, this time in a controlled manner. The amount he chose was the smallest he could imagine, 250 micrograms, or 8 microonces. For comparison, this amount is one-tenth of the weight of a grain of sand. Huffman was certain that such a tiny amount could not be dangerous. He mixed the material in water and drank it. It turns out Huffman didn't fully appreciate the potency of LSD. We now know that it is one of the strongest drugs known to man. Think of it this way. A single dose of cocaine 
One tiny line of white powder weighs about 100 milligrams, and that's almost a thousand doses of LSD. The amount Huffman consumed, 250 micrograms, is five times more than the common dose. Forty minutes later, the drug effects kicked in. Dizziness, a slight sense of anxiety, eyes twitching, and a strong will to laugh. Quote, Here the notes in my laboratory journal cease. I was able to write the last words only with great effort. I had to struggle to speak intelligibly. I asked my laboratory assistant to escort me home. We went by bicycle. On the way home, everything in my field of vision wavered and was distorted as if it was in a curved mirror. I also had the sensation of being unable to move from the spot. Nevertheless, my assistant later told me that we had traveled very rapidly. Finally, we arrived at home and I had to lay down on a sofa. My surroundings had now transformed themselves in more terrifying ways. Everything in the room spun around and the familiar objects and pieces of furniture assumed grotesque, threatening forms. They were in continuous motion, animated, as if driven by an inner restlessness. The lady next door, whom I scarcely recognized, brought me milk. She was no longer Mrs. R, but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. A demon had invaded me, had taken possession of my body, mind and soul. I jumped up and screamed, trying to free myself from him, but then sank down again and lay helpless on the sofa. I was seized by the dreadful fear of going insane. I was taken to another world, another place, another time. My body seemed to be without sensation, lifeless, strange. Was I dying? At times, I believed myself to be outside my body, and then perceived clearly, as an outside observer, the complete tragedy of my situation. I had not even taken leave of my family. Would they ever understand that I had not experimented thoughtlessly, irresponsibly, but rather with the utmost caution, and that such a result was in no way foreseeable? End quote. His frightened assistant called the doctor and explained the intent of the experiment. The physician examined Hoffman and shrugged. All was normally explained. The pupils were a bit dilated, but other than that, there didn't seem to be anything wrong with the scientist. Hoffman's pulse, his breathing and blood pressure were all normal. The physician had no way to assist him since physically Hoffman was perfectly healthy. Nowadays, the common treatment method for people who experience a bad trip, such as Hoffman's, is to isolate them in a quiet room without any external simulations. Luckily, that was exactly what Hoffman's doctor did. He laid him down in the quiet bedroom and monitored him. Slowly but surely, the effects of the LSD wore off and the bad trip gave way to a more pleasant experience. 
quote, the horse softened and gave way to a feeling of good fortune and gratitude. The more normal perceptions and thoughts returned, and I became more confident that the danger of insanity was conclusively passed. Now, little by little, I could begin to enjoy the unprecedented colors and plays of shapes that persisted behind my closed eyes. Kaleidoscopic, fantastic images surged in on me, alternating, variegated, opening and then closing themselves in circles and spirals, exploding in colored fountains, rearranging and hybridizing themselves in constant flux. It was particularly remarkable how every acoustic perception, such as the sound of a door handle or a passing automobile, became transformed into optical perceptions. Every sound generated a vividly changing image with its own consistent form and color." End quote. Hoffman fell asleep. When he woke up the next day, the hallucinations and visions had disappeared, but not entirely. He still felt a bit strange, as if a new life force encompassed him and sizzled in him. All his senses were sharper and fresher than ever. Breakfast was extraordinarily delicious, and even the sun shone brighter. When Hoffman later wrote a report to his executives, he already knew that he was onto something important. LSD was different than any drug he had ever encountered before. This turned out to be also the mindset of Sandow's executives. They now had a powerful medicine in their hands. All they had to do was to find the proper illness. Sandow's distributed the LSD to thousands of psychiatrists around the world free of charge. One of the assumptions was that LSD could be used as a psychomimetic drug, or in other words, a drug that temporarily causes symptoms of a psychotic state, such as hallucinations and loss of mental control. Sandow's highly recommended psychiatrists to try LSD on themselves before giving it to their patients in order to see what it was like to be crazy, at least for a few hours. This is Tom. This is Jake. And this is Travis. And we are the Drunken Dork Podcast. Tune in every week and listen to us discuss the finer points on superheroes, the latest pop culture news, as well as all of our favorite blues. You can listen to us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, or the Stitcher app for Android. And be sure to catch up on all of our episodes by visiting us over at www.drunkendorkpodcast.wordpress.com. And remember, folks, you have one liver. Ruin it well. From the 1930s until the 1970s, thousands of articles were written about LSD and its potential to help people recover from alcoholism, its effect on creativity, treating anxiety, emotional blockage, and more. Psychiatrists experimented with the new drug, trying to figure out its uses. One such experiment, and a very controversial one, took place in 1962. Elephants are usually quiet and peaceful animals. During their estrus cycle, on the other hand, male elephants can become very violent. They may attack their human trainers or even other females. 
This phenomena is called must and biologists find it very interesting because, well, biologists. The psychiatrist Louis West of Oklahoma University decided to test whether LSD could artificially induce must in an otherwise peaceful elephant. His experiment took place at the Oklahoma Zoo, where Tusco the elephant lived. Tusco is a generic name for elephants, like buddy for dogs, kitty for cats, and kill it for cockroaches. Now comes the sad part. After arriving at the zoo, West and his colleagues filled a syringe with LSD and injected it into Tusco's buttocks using a crossbow. They expected wild behavior and violence, but the result was the complete opposite. Tusco became imbalanced and could hardly stand on his feet. His female mate tried to steady him, but Tusco collapsed and fell to the ground. It lost control over its sphincters, its eyes crossed, and its entire body shivered with powerful epileptic seizures. The seizures lasted long minutes when West finally decided to inject the animal with an antipsychotic drug in order to neutralize the effects of LSD. The shivering faded, but Tusco died an hour and 40 minutes later. Louis West was strongly criticized for his experiment both for the negligence that led to the killing of such a rare and unique animal and for the errors in the actual experiment itself. Some researchers claimed that West miscalculated the dose. He injected about 300 milligrams of LSD, or 3,000 times more than the common dose for humans. Even though an elephant weighs 3 tons, its brain is only 3 to 4 times bigger than a human brain, which is a crucial element when calculating a dose. Even the dose of the antipsychotic drug was exaggerated, and perhaps that was what actually killed the poor animal. In other words, the experiment was so negligent that there was no way to even determine what the actual cause of death was. Yet the experiment on Tusco, as upsetting and unnecessary as it was, doesn't even come close to the cruelty of another experiment which took place around the same time. Some of the American soldiers who were captured during the Korean War went through terrible physical and psychological tortures. Their captors tried to break them psychologically and extract secret military information. And what is your name? Private James W. Yeager. And your rank? Private. And uh, your organization? 29th Infantry. And you were on the death march from uh, Seoul to the capital of North Korea? Yes, sir. And how did you, uh, can you tell me about it from there? Well, from Seoul uh, to Peking, uh, they uh, marched us uh, steadily for a night and a day uh -huh. and fed us only crackers. Uh -huh. And where did you go from there then? Did you go up to the tunnel from there? Yes, uh, next day, why? They moved us on to the tunnel mm -hmm. and we stayed in the tunnel all mm -hmm. day long. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they issued two the CIA feared that the Soviet Union and its allies were trying to develop advanced brainwashing techniques to reprogram POWs and turn them into double agents. The LSD's potential as a psychomimetic drug intrigued the CIA because, well, CIA. Some people imagined that the drug could turn innocent people into cold-blooded assassins, or perhaps influence the decision-making of foreign countries' leaders. 
1953, the CIA began a top-secret experiment later to be known as MKUltra. During the experiment, LSD and other more familiar techniques such as complete isolation and hypnosis were tested as ways to create emotional and mental stress. This multi-million dollar project included dozens of participating universities and research institutions. Since MKUltra was a top-secret experiment, no external supervision was allowed, and this fact allowed the CIA to run amok with experiments which most people would find hard to imagine taking place in a modern democracy. For example, a CIA agent gave prostitutes $100 for them to slip a dose of LSD into their client's drink so that the agent could then observe the drug's effect behind a two-way mirror. The CIA knew that no client would ever go to the police. One of the more infamous experiments was that of Dr. Donald Cameron, a Canadian psychiatrist who worked for the CIA. Cameron developed a theory called psychic driving that he hoped would help treat mental illnesses such as schizophrenia and depression. According to his theory, you could reprogram the brain by erasing traumatic memories and replacing them with different, more pleasant memories. The CIA funded Cameron's research, hoping to use the reprogramming part for other purposes, of course. They experimented with mescaline, scopolamine, and marijuana on unwitting victims. The goal remained the same. As this 1952 CIA memo says, the aim is controlling an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against such fundamental laws of nature as self-preservation. For this seemingly novel purpose, Dr. Cameron performed horrific experiments on unsuspecting patients who were admitted to psychiatric hospitals. Tell me about the acid. Oh, I'd rather not. It's a bad trip. It's a bad trip. That was a bad trip. The pain was so excruciating, felt like somebody was sticking me with a million pins. You know, just everywhere. Oh, it just... These were the easiest victims, helpless people who could not resist any testing performed on them. Some of these unfortunate patients were ordinary people who were admitted as a result of minor issues such as postpartum depression or anxiety attacks. Dr. Cameron injected these people with large doses of insulin which put them in a coma for weeks. In other experiments, he electrocuted his patients with a voltage 30 times larger than the maximum amount normally allowed. LSD was a major part of these experiments as well. Cameron drugged his patients and forced them to listen to positive messages tapes over and over again for days and weeks. How long did they put you to sleep for? I was in a, a, a coma for 86 days. 86, 86 days of unbroken sleep. Yeah. Total comatose state. These treatments, or rather psychological tortures, done by Dr. Cameron caused severe damage to his patients. 
some people never returned to their former selves. Many lives were ruined. For example, one patient lost 26 years worth of memories, including the memories from when her children were young. MKUltra continued for 10 years. The CIA then came to the conclusion that LSD wasn't efficient as a psychological weapon since it is often unpredictable and there is no way to predict the effect of the drug on a specific human brain. In the early 1970s, this top-secret project was exposed in an investigative story published by the New York Times. The public was appalled to discover the moral decrepitude of the CIA. Only 30 years earlier, the United States was the main prosecutor of the Nuremberg trials, where the horrors of medical experiments conducted by Nazi doctors were exposed. Dr. Cameron himself was one of the experts who testified on behalf of the prosecution. How could it be that similar experiments took place in the enlightened United States of America? In 1973, after the exposure of MKUltra, the director of the CIA ordered the destruction of all documents related to the project in order to obstruct a congressional investigation. Much effort was made to settle civil claims outside the courts. All we know today about Project MKUltra comes from some 20,000 documents who were filed in the wrong cabinet and thus saved from the shredder and from people's testimonies, those helpless psychiatric patients who became victims of the project. One of those witnesses, by the way, was a young student called Ken Kesey, who worked at a military psychiatric hospital and volunteered to be a participant in the experiments. His experiences drove him to write, and his book, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, became a bestseller and was later adopted to a well-known film starring Jack Nicholson. If there's one thing we can learn from MKUltra, it's the establishment's attitude towards LSD. Many considered it to be a very dangerous drug, potentially capable of radically altering thoughts and behaviors, which was what the CIA hoped to achieve using it. It is this attitude that will clash head-on with the hippie movement of the 1960s, whose members also had much the same attitude towards the drug. Both saw LSD as an agent of social change, but what should the change be? Well, that's a whole different matter. In the next episode, part two of the history of LSD, we'll talk about the effect of LSD on the hippie movement of the 1960s and about one of its most famous icons, Dr. Timothy Leary. From there, we'll try to decipher the actual neurological influence of LSD on our brain and finally discuss the true benefits and dangers of using LSD. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode of CM Pod. What did you think about my accent? 
Were you comfortable listening to it, or was it too distracting? I'll be more than happy to hear your thoughts and feedbacks. Drop me a note at run, R-A-N, at cmpod.net. Visit our website at cmpod.net to listen to all our past episodes, such as the history of poisons or the U-boat technology of the Second World War. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and podcasting apps such as Podcast Addict or BeyondPod. Just enter CMPod, one word, no spaces, in the search field. On our website, you can also subscribe to the mailing list and get an update on each new episode. That's cmpod.net. CMPod are Kelly O'Loughlin, editor and co-host. Danny T. Moore is our business manager. And me, Ran Levy, producer, writer, and host. Thank you for listening. See you again next week. Bye-bye.